politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, American taxpayers, and all-around law-abiding, peace-loving American citizens to the one and only Conservative Review podcast on this first day of the week, kicking off a new and exciting week here, November 4th, Monday. And yes, we are here in, uh, I guess, more formal dress. I don't know why. I think maybe I'm just in the mood of it just because of the seriousness of the matter we're going to discuss. Crime. Mixed up morality when it comes to criminal justice. Illegal aliens invading our country and getting standing in our court to sue us for the right to be a public charge. It's like we are strangers in our own country. Ten times over. And amazing, even our own president who ran on law and order is still out there uh, promoting jailbreak and things like that. And, and nobody is discussing the most important news of the day. Now, I could go on forever when it comes to crime. If I discussed just cases of egregious violent felons being let go without bond, um, serving barely any time, if no time at all, I could ignore every other issue. And I'd have enough content to do three-hour shows every day, and write multiple columns every day. And yet nobody knows this is going on. Over the weekend, I was speaking with some friends and neighbors. You know, they often ask me, hey, what are you working on, Daniel? And, and what I'm shocked about is that so few people even recognize what's going on. If they knew, they would all be opposed to this. Nobody supports this type of garbage. Nobody at all. Yet... It is happening relentlessly in all 50 states, this jailbreak. So we'll start off with our usual suspects, New York, Chicago, California. But this is happening in all 50 states. And then, of course, we have the news over the weekend, which kind of ties into criminal justice in many ways, where an Oregon judge just says, I'm putting a four-week injunction on the president's application of the 1996 Welfare Reform Act to ensure that people who enter this country on long-term immigrant visas don't get access to health care through taxpayer funds. They either have to demonstrate that they have health insurance coverage, some way of getting it paid for, or they have the financial resources to pay for it on their own. And by the way, if someone is completely well and they have a clean bill of health, this uh, regulation, this policy is not going to apply to them. So these are people likely to become a public charge. But as you well know, the lower courts, at least the ones where the left goes to, have already demonstrated that immigration law is unconstitutional. It has nothing to do with Trump. It has nothing to do with his executive policies. This is all a matter of saying you are not allowed to be a sovereign nation, that foreign nationals control our destiny. They could come here against our will. They could demand entry against our will. They could demand entry and access to our services against our will. And they could get standing in court against our will. And there's not a darn thing we can do about it. Now, this story out of Oregon, truth be told, wouldn't be too newsworthy if we lived in a sane world where this administration would aggressively defend its branch of government as the founders 
envisioned as Madison always uh, referenced that each branch would jealously guard its powers and not beg the other branch to do it for them, like beg the Supreme Court to rein in its own stupid lower courts. So if that were the case, if we were a healthy, functioning, vibrant republic, what happened over the weekend wouldn't be news. But it is news because they're going to follow it. See, typically, if a judge says, hey, everyone gets to come in the country and access welfare, it would be the same thing as me saying Trump has to meet with me every Sunday morning for brunch. Okay, they, they have as much power to do that as I do. There's no injunction button like it activates. They don't have such power. They have no way of enforcing it. And they don't control visas and the border. That is all executive power. It's not within the province of judicial power. But, you know, they're going to, you know, you know how they're going to respond? Let's go appeal to the Ninth Circuit. That's, that, that's really great. Now, again, before we get to crime, I just want to close the loop on this, the importance of this case. And we have an article out today organizing kind of <clears throat> some of the key thoughts on this. But what's important here is to remember there is no valid standing in this case. Judges can't just sue things or veto things in the abstract. You have to give relief to a plaintiff. And there has to be a plaintiff for whom there is valid standing with a valid injury in fact that is ripe at this moment. So, first of all, foreign nationals do not have standing to sue. Okay, for the right to enter. We're not even talking about those who made it into the country and we were deporting them. We're talking about a denial of entry. They're not, they've never been to the country. I mean, this is why the courts have said for years, and you know I have like 20 different courts uh, uh, quotes. You could look up our article 16 quotes on why the, the president has full authority to deny entry, why they have no standing in court, and, and things like that. But you know, here's just a few. In, uh, in this case, Landon, it was, um, let's see how long ago it was given, I'm trying to remember. Um, well, let's first go with uh, Mandel in 1972. In accord with ancient principles of international law of nation states, the power to exclude aliens is inherent in sovereignty necessary for maintaining normal international relations and defending the country against foreign encroachments and dangers, a power to be exercised exclusively by the political branches of government. Okay, this is as late as 1972, um, the courts were still saying, and, and, and this Mandel case is quoted all the time. To this day, is quoted all the time. So that's the first thing I think all of us need to recognize. There is simply no standing in the matter. There is no valid standing. A foreign national, meaning even if the president, let's say, violated, let's say he exercised some sort of enforcement power that he didn't have, which is very hard, which we're going to see is not true. But let's say there were such a thing. It doesn't mean a judge has the power to veto even a legitimate violation. They don't veto anything. They grant relief to a legitimate plaintiff. We have an executive veto. There's no judicial veto. We've said this a number of times. What I find amazing is Congress is out to lunch. They're on vacation again. 
They're never doing anything. And even when they're in, they don't do anything. But what's amazing is we are told erroneously that a single district judge, based on what side of the bed he wakes up on on any given day, over the, and this happened over the weekend. Over the weekend, he could just issue a veto on longstanding immigration policy, ancient principles, as the Supreme Court said, on sovereignty. And, um, you know, there's, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you could do about it as, as a separate independent branch of government. And it's just not true. But that's the irony, if you think about it. Oh, a lot of these things come out over the weekend. Any judge could just give standing, which isn't hard because the left sues every policy, irrespective of whether there's legitimate standing. So any liberal judge is able to illegally give standing, illegally rule on the merits, and any time, 24-7, could just issue an injunction, and that's like a veto. If we are going to accept all those erroneous premises as a nation, I will tell you we are done. Done, done, done. There is nothing more to even debate over because the lower courts are accomplishing more in one day than either party would hope to accomplish through the legislative process in, in 10 years. I mean, imagine if Congress were to introduce a bill, like a Democrat in Congress were to introduce a bill that says anyone from anywhere in the world could get standing and sue, not just for the right to enter, but also to get like public funding. I would argue that even if Democrats would control all three branches, they would be too skittish about passing that and they wouldn't have the votes because the, the type of districts they would need to win to get a majority, they would be scared of losing and getting crushed by pushing such a thing. That is a vibrant republic in, in action. But here, they just enacted through the courts unilaterally. Now, the next point is, even hypothetically <clears throat> even hypothetically if let's say there was such a thing as 7.8 billion people in the world getting standing to sue for the right to enter there is no ripe case here point to me john doe who was denied entry who would have otherwise been able to enter before trump's order and now is not able to enter and he was denied and and he would sue the Trump policy didn't even go into effect yet. There's people who are, there's US citizens are suing on behalf of alien residents who might want to come. You don't have a right to sue for that. And anyway, no one has been denied yet. And it's not clear these people would even be denied. That's the thing. There's no, you can't just say like, I don't like the policy. You hear what I'm saying? Even if it would be unlawful, even if Trump did overstep his boundaries, it, a court can't veto that. It's like, hey, you, you, you got a certain um, problem. I'm giving you relief. But then that gets into another problem, which is what is the form of relief you're asking for? If it's a, an American criminal, let's say being locked up, fined, imprisoned, so a judge could grant relief and say, you don't have to pay the fine. They could put a negative on a positive action of government taken against the negative unalienable rights of a citizen. But for a judge to say, oh, you get a visa, a judge, that, that you can't put a positive on a negative action of, of, of executive power. I mean, could a judge say, you have to order this special forces operation in Afghanistan? I would like 
you to um you know i feel bad for what's going on to uh, uh the kurds in syria so trump you have to send in the 10th mountain division and order this operation i'm granting relief to the kurds right that, that, that's not you don't have such power and, and we need to demonstrate that so there's that obviously on the merits their point was oh trump made up this business health status yeah, it says public charge in the 1996 law, but that's age and, you know, you factor in their age, their financial resources, their education, their family situation. Um, it never says health insurance in there. That, that was the this judge, this clown, Judge Simon, who's an Obama appointee in, in Oregon. And of course, they pick Oregon, even though most of the plaintiffs aren't even from there. Um, it's all a joke. So that, that that's what he was contending. But. The proof's in the pudding. The Trump administration is not mandating that anyone who comes in gets health insurance. They're saying that if you are not, if you don't show that you have a clean bill of health, and if you're here in the long term, that means it's almost certain that you are going to show up um, at some point for medical care, that is likely to become a public charge. So you either have to show that you could pay for it in some way, or if not, that you have health insurance, right? It's not only insurance. If you show that you have the ability to pay. So that's part of the statute because that is taking into account your financial resources, right? If you are able to pay for it, if you have the resources, but you don't have insurance, you're not going to be denied on those grounds. And if you don't have the ability to pay for it, then you're a public charge. <laughs> then you should be, that, that, is, that is the statute. Um, Trump's being nice by saying if you somehow have from someone some sort of insurance plan, even if you're kind of poor, um, well, you'll be covered, so fine, we'll let you in. But under law, you could deny anyone who's, who's likely to become a public charge. And the proof's in the pudding. One of the plaintiffs is trying to get in a family member, and they're saying, this guy is poor, I don't think he can afford it. Well, that's the point. <laughs> if he can't afford it, then that's statute. I mean, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then finally, as I've said ad nauseum, again and again and again and again, and the administration has not done enough of a publicity push educating people on this point. And that is as follows. The president has inherent executive authority to deny entry. And then he has delegated authority under other sections of the INA to deny entry and to regulate entry. 212F of the INA, that's 1182F of US code, that allows him to deny entry for anyone, for any reason, anytime, any group of people, all people, any reason. And then 215A of the INA allows him to regulate that entry. So it's not just an on or off button that the president could either allow everyone in or deny entry. He could say, I'm only allowing people to enter under these ports of entry, under these circumstances, in this way. It is 100% given over to him. Um, we've said this before. Even the Northern District of California, as late as 1996, said that the president's ability to regulate the right to enter is inherent in his um, governance over foreign policy. Um, there's This is amply uh, dealt with in my book, Stolen Sovereignty, throughout the 1800s. This was our history. But um, here, here's the punchline that, that I want to get to before we chew up too much time and don't have time for, for the latest on criminal justice. 
the Supreme Court last year just ruled on this. So again, when Trump announced this proclamation, he said under you know the Welfare Reform Act of the INA that you know public charge law, which is um, uh, what do you call it? It's it's two twelve a four of the INA. But then he said, in addition, under 212F and 215A, which is his right just to shut off anything. So even if you would think that the public charge law doesn't give him the authority to regulate it in this exact manner, the broader plenary shutoff valves certainly give that to him. This was said in Trump v. Hawaii. This is from Chief Justice Roberts in the majority opinion, quote, by its terms, 1182F exudes deference to the president in every clause. It entrusts to the president the decisions whether and when to suspend entry, whose entry to suspend, for how long, and on what conditions. It thus vests the president with, quote, ample power to impose entry restrictions in addition to those elsewhere enumerated in the INA. Okay, the Supreme Court ruled on this, but every day we are seeing lower courts just blow through it. You know, we've done shows on this many times that the, the left controls the legal profession. So there is no stigma against the lower court just saying screw you to, um, a, uh, to, to a, a Supreme Court ruling that's built on 130 years of precedent as well as recent decisions. So this gets me to my punchline. Everyone's response is, let's appeal the decision. But they're missing the point. Trump, to my knowledge, has not lost a single immigration case in three years. The Supreme Court ultimately always has ruled with him. But where has that gotten us? Nowhere. It's whack-a-mole. For every 10 we win on, they bring back 100 more in the same way that defies what the Supreme Court just said. We can't have sane policies governing the fiscal solvency and the security of this nation being placed on hold indefinitely until the Supreme Court gets off its rear end. And then even when it does, it doesn't stop it. They come back in a different case and apply the same erroneous principle just rejected by the Supreme Court in a different case. This is why they need to police their own branch of government and say, look, get off our lawn. How hard for it is how hard is it for the president and the attorney general to stand before the American people and say, look, the Supreme Court has said for 130 years, people don't have the right. When I say people, I mean foreign nationals in alien countries don't have the right to immigrate. That is a political debate. Who, how many, over what circumstances we're going to let in. But there is no right to immigrate and certainly a right to immigrate and access our health care system. I think people would get that. I know people would get that. So until the Trump administration actually goes this route, frankly, we are screwed. We are totally screwed. So that's with that. Let's move on to, to jailbreak. <sighs> Let's play over here this clip from the president's uh, um, mini press conference, you know, when the reporters jump on Air Force One right before he was going to leave. This was yesterday. Listen to this from the president. I did criminal justice reform. Nobody else. I did it. Without me, you don't have criminal justice reform. And that was for the African-Americans more than anybody else. So I think my standing in the African community, African-American community, is uh, maybe the best. 
look, I understand he was mainly not talking about criminal justice. He was mainly talking about electoral politics, like, oh, I'll do good with the the blacks, you know, the African-Americans. Um, but I mean, dude, Trump ran against this his whole life. He tweeted about this for years, that blacks commit an inordinate amount of violent crime and they are not incarcerated unjustly. If anything, they're under-incarcerated. We've gone through this in, in depth in many shows, many articles. Why, at a time when the public would embrace a, a fight against the left's war on cops, their war on incarceration, their release of violent criminals, and even, even like theft and petty larceny, we see that in California now. Even Fox News is now reporting, thanks to Prop 47, there's a rash of theft and burglary and, and shoplifting in California that's costing their economy billions of dollars. We always talk about the cost of incarceration. Nobody talks about the cost of, le of, of not deterring crime um, and, and leaving violent criminals on, on, on the streets. The cost of the economy, the cost of private citizens that go uncompensated. Because we don't matter. Citizens don't matter. It's all the criminals. Everything's for them. So let's... Let's go through some of the opportunities, the messaging opportunities that the president is missing, what he could talk about, what's going on here. Okay. So we have this case in New York now. We told you about this a while ago. We're basically, come January 1st, there's going to be a law enacted that abolishes cash bail for all but the worst crimes. And, and, and even a lot of the worst ones, they they're going to have a lot more avenues to offer very little um, cash bail thresholds. And they're going to have all sorts of other options where they could release them. It won't be mandatory for those categories, but as we're going to see, and as, as we've been reporting, even before this law is enacted, even states that haven't enacted it, judges who are a bunch of liberal buffoons in a lot of these places are doing it anyway, discretionary. So certainly after this mandatory law passes, but basically the New York Post, which has done a terrific job reporting on this, warns that Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, is planning a mass jailbreak of 900 criminals, just letting them out an early Christmas present, even before January. He's trying to get an early start on it. So remember, this law applies retroactively. So if you beat people up, you're caught gangbanging, drug trafficking, and you're sitting in jail today pursuant to those that system, come January 1st, it's not just people arrested for crimes starting in January, it's anyone currently, they're going to retroactively boom. So they're looking at immediately releasing 900 criminals back on the streets. That, that, that's a big story. And let me tell you, we've already said this, it's hard to be held. I mean, we talked about the murderers and rapists and all sorts of people released. So, the, I mean, if you're being held under current policy in New York jails pre-trial, you're bad news. Because there's a lot who have long rap sheets that are, are released. So certainly if you're being held, you're among those that are bad. This is an unbelievable public safety problem. And this is what every Republican and Trump should be railing against. But anyway, now they're actually in the process of releasing them even earlier. Um. And their whole point is how it's unfair to hold people pre-trial. And these people are going to show up to their trial. You're accusing people of not showing up. So first of all, like we've noted many times, the point of holding them is not just to ensure that they show up for the trial. 
It's also there are some really bad people. If they have a, a history of violence, they're going to be out in the streets doing more crimes. And then also, once they're out on the streets, they're going to intimidate the victims and witnesses, and you're not going to be able to convict them even on the first crime. It's a point we've been making over and over again. But what's amazing is this legal aid society, one of these dirtbag, immoral, terrible NGOs that help free violent criminals on bail and they help post bail and represent these people. They're filing motions to get these people released at, you know, as early as possible. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, we had this case of Randy Santos, which no one talked about. A guy that had numerous outstanding case, you know, felony uh, arrests for groping a woman for assault for all sorts of things, all sorts of violent crimes, not nonviolent crimes. And he was let out with nothing. He was on the streets. He had a history of skipping court hearings like we're talking about. And he is now accused of beating four homeless men to death with a lead pipe in Chinatown last month. Randy Santos is now being represented by this very legal aid society group. So how rich it is for these people to say, how dare you say people aren't going to show up? Yeah, you're kind of representing someone who didn't show up, and then he was out in the streets, and then he murdered four people. But that's that. Now, to add insult to injury, um, our buddy Bill de Blasio, the New York City governor, who, by the way, wants to embrace criminals and ban sugary drinks. So in his honor, we'll take a swig here of some Coke. Um, so Bill de Blasio is looking for a way to incentivize all these people to show up to their arraignments, their hearings, their trials. So what he's doing is he's offering free Mets tickets, like to Mets baseball games and, and other similar entertainment venues uh, as an incentive to get them to show up. So what's funny is uh, the Mets aren't nearly as as popular as the Yankees, so they're doing it for there. So one cop told the New York Post that, hey, I guess they're saving the Yankees tickets for the murderers because that's going to come soon where they, they're, they'll let out. They're let out on bond, too. And, and we've seen that already. But I want I want to let you know, this is no joke. This is happening in every state. Oklahoma is full of jailbreak Coke Republicans. It's one of the biggest jailbreak cities. See, they have this complex that they're tagged with the highest incarceration rate in the country. But it's not a valid argument to say I have a high too high of an incarceration rate. Cut the numbers. Show me who needs to be let out. And we could talk about that category individually. But then at the, that's number one. Number two is at the same time, you do need to have a balanced approach, like we talk about, of all these people that are violent as anything, even in Oklahoma, not being locked up. Earlier, earlier this year, we reported on the case of uh, uh, Munoz. What was this guy's name here? Um, Andrew Munoz. This guy who had a massive rap sheet of violent felonies, drug trafficking, firearms violations, you name it. And he was speeding, driving erratically, running from police, and he killed a mother and daughter. We reported on this in April, and he was caught with drugs and firearms in his car then. And I looked at the guy's rapture. I was like, man, this guy didn't serve any time in Oklahoma. This is not New York City. This is Oklahoma. So, like, A, you have to show me. Don't, don't say we're going to cut the numbers by X percent. You can't do that. That's like saying, that's like saying I'm going to make a left turn 
on the road because I waited to I waited long enough. It's a tough left. I waited long enough. I'm just going to go anyway. Well, fine. I, you know, I feel for you, but you, you just can't do that. If you believe there's too many people in prison, you can't just say, I'm just going to let people go. You have to articulate who exactly is really being over incarcerated. And you'll find there really aren't too many of them. And to the extent you can find them, there are 10 times as many people on the other side of the ledger who even under current mass incarceration are not being incarcerated. Andrew Munoz, another case in Oklahoma City you're not going to hear about. But anyway, why am I talking about Oklahoma? The Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board is recommending the immediate release of 527 inmates. And it's all designed because we have to cut the prison population. Our goal is to cut it by another 1.6%. What type of policy is that? Oklahoma is a state. Are you ready for this? Where the Republican presidential nominee has won every single county for the last four presidential elections. You have to go back to 2000 where Al Gore won a county there. And even in a state like that, we have every politician, Republican politicians, just promoting jailbreak. The people don't want this. The people don't want this in any stretch of the imagination. That's the problem. There, there is such a gulf between, you know, the political class and your average citizen. And that's the problem here. I mean, polling has consistently shown um, that people are against this. And I'm trying to dig up here an article I wrote on this one time just so you get this, some polling data here. Um, here's, there's a polling from the Foundation for Safeguarding Justice, very, com very comprehensive poll that was published uh, last year. And, and the questions were not loaded. They were very straightforward, and they lowballed, undersold the severity of what jailbreak is doing, and they're all about. Okay? Remember, they are releasing and cutting sentences and releasing pretrial the worst of the worst. Not, we're not even talking about drugs anymore. But these were questions even about drugs. Question. When thinking about how the federal government deals with convicted defendants, would you support or oppose a proposal to reduce penalties for traffickers in heroin, fentanyl, and similar, similar drugs? Very straightforward question. It wasn't like leading them on saying, and you know, most of those guys are Latin kings, gangbangers, doing murder and robbery. No, no, no. Just straight up. What was the result? 74% oppose. 73% of independents oppose. 70% of Democrats oppose reducing sentencing. 71% of African Americans and even 63% of millennials. They, Mr. President, you're being lied to. Next question. In general, do you think the federal government is too tough, not tough enough, or about right in its handling of drug, drug trafficking? 51% said not tough enough. 25% said just right. 14% said too tough. Just 15% of African Americans believe we are too tough on drug traffickers. And women voters were the most likely to think that we are not tough enough. And Republicans are talking about how to get suburban women. 
Imagine if you would ask a, a question. See, drugs are kind of loaded because this has been this long campaign that we're too tough on drugs. Imagine if you asked the question in general, are we too tough on crime or too weak on crime? I would love to see a poll on that. I don't know anyone, Republican or Democrat, unless they work in the legal profession or some elite thing that thinks that way. Everyone thinks under existing policy, we're already not tough enough, much less what they're planning on doing. But I can go on and on. We, man, I didn't even get to any of my cases here. So, you know, now we have a new case on Halloween. They egged and trashed a NYPD police cruiser. Um, the cops came out and were cleaning up the car, and they were openly being taunted. They knew not, nothing was going to happen to them. Now, the president has been very morally clear on defending cops, but what he doesn't understand is supporting jailbreak policies ties into the delegitimizing their work. It gives credence to this myth that we're somehow over-incarcerating and unjustly arresting, unjustly incarcerating. And let me show you where this comes into full play, jailbreak and police and the war on cops. And, and this is another case they won't talk about. And, and thank you, by the way, if I don't mention you by name, just, just so you know, you guys have been terrific in this audience, either tweeting me, emailing me all these cases. As you notice, I'm using a lot of them. This is truly a group effort, and I'm so thankful for you. I would never know a lot about a lot of these local cases um, and and keep, keep sending them to me. I mean, more information, the better. I, I won't always have time for it, but uh, let's keep this up. So anyway, I got from one of you, New York Daily News, Musa Williams, 25. So he was arrested. He's really from Maryland, another jailbreak state. String of crimes he was arrested for. Um, and he was arrested last week. And basically, Maryland found an outstanding warrant from Manhattan on a seven, September 24th failure to appear in criminal court on criminal mischief charges in New York City. So this guy already had a long rap sheet and already had a history of missing a trial, right? So despite that, on the very same day, this was on Friday, just Friday, Manhattan criminal court judge Laurie Peterson released Williams on his own recognizance that very same day. Okay. Two days later, this is yesterday on Sunday. He was accused of beating a Port Authority officer, quote, it's from the New York Daily News, so badly Sunday morning that he broke the 27-year-old cop's nose and cut his left eyeball. You know the, you know the sad irony here? Even now, how much do you think he'll, how, how much time do you think he'll serve? It's assault. It's only, assault. I mean, guys for murder are, are only serving a few years in New York. Maybe he'll get two years, three years. And then pre-trial, you're like, okay, this guy's going to be held. Under this new law, I mean, I guess if it's aggravated assault resulting in serious bodily injury, there's not a mandatory release. But I've been told by prosecutors there that even a case like this, first of all, a lot of them are already releasing people like that. Um, and certainly with this new law, there's a lot of avenues for them to give them very little cash bond, mixing it with some other options that will basically ensure that they're out on the street. They want them to be home for Christmas. What about the Christmas present for, present for Americans? No, Americans are left with a lump of coal. But you know what? The coal that we're left with in our chimneys is not from Santa coming in with coal. 
It's going to be from violent criminals breaking into our homes and trashing them or hurting people outside their homes because they are completely undeterred. The president is pushing the Second Step Act. I'm not kidding. They have this. They had a whole event a couple of months ago on the Second Step Act, on a second jailbreak bill. He promised to stand up for victims of crime, safe streets, you know, the 99% of Americans who are law-abiding and aren't criminals. How about giving them a first step before you give a second step jailbreak act to criminals when all the left-wing states and the left-wing red states are already pushing jailbreak enough? It's just so frustrating. And again, the president's instincts aren't like this, but, you know, it's all the people around him. But at the end of the day, you know, the buck stops where where he is. Um, and it's it's his problem. But anyway, we're almost out of time. There's there's more stuff here. We 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 have an article on this, a case on uh, in Chicago. You know, you had a, a, a seven year old girl dressed up as a bee in hollow in a Halloween costume was shot in the crossfire of a of a Latin Kings war. And it turned out this guy was known to law enforcement, was there many times out on the streets. Think about that. In Chicago, you're not allowed to carry a gun. But gangbangers who shoot people with guns are cycled in and out. You'll never hear about that. But anyway, I want you guys to, to, to hear this because this is a perfect example of jailbreak. It's a perfect example of how it's impossible to land a conviction. Even the worst people, we have to accept plea bargains, and they, then they barely serve any time. There was an Indianapolis man who was accused of entering two Lincoln Park homes. Lincoln Park is a neighbor in Chicago and sexually abusing two sleeping girls um, while sleeping. Now, th this happened last year, but the plea deal, I think, was last last week. Um, kudos to CWB um, Chicago for reporting on this. They're the only ones who do this. Hunter Best, 26. Um, basically, basically, this guy was arrested on 26 felonies including four counts of class class 10 felony home invasion involving a sex offense, as well as 14 burglary counts and four sex-related charges. But ultimately, he pled guilty to just two counts of run-of-the-mill residential burglary, nothing more, and nothing on the sex offenses. They have DNA evidence. They have cameras. They have shots of him breaking. They, they, they got him. But it doesn't matter. They're not going to be able to land a conviction. Um, basically, they say he broke into two separate homes in the neighborhood that night, May 27, 2018. One case, he sexually abused a 13-year-old girl that she slept. Um, uh, 20 minutes later, he entered uh, another home and sexually abused an 11-year-old girl. Um, basically, the 13-year-old girl woke up, and when he was in the bedroom for 15 minutes, kissing the girl, rubbing her shoulders, and the girl pleaded him to leave. Eventually left. The father chased him out. He went to another home. The 11-year-old girl was sleeping at her grandfather's house when she woke up with a strange man standing above him. Um, the man kissed her on the lip. Whatever. You know, you, you could read the article. Um, according to CWB Chicago, this guy, because it's pleading down, he's going to get two concurrent eight-year terms. The state will cut the sentence by 50% now for good behavior. 
And when mixed with everything else, when mixed with the time he's sitting in jail the last 15 months, at least he wasn't released pre-trial. There's other sex offenders we report on every day that are released, child molesters released pre-trial. This guy is going to be released. Probably he'll wind up serving a little bit more than two years. There you go. There's too many people serving time in prison. Screw you. What else do we have here? Another case. A Florida man. Columbia student killed by Florida man who confessed, apologized, and pled not guilty. This is from yesterday, um, thestate.com. Um, in Florida, in the days after London uh, Harrell was killed, the man charged with her death said he was sorry and confessed to being intoxicated. In spite of those admissions, Yusuf Hassan is pleading not guilty to multiple DUI charges following the death of the 20-year-old from Columbia. On October 29th, the 25-year-old Florida man pleaded not guilty to vehicular homicide, DUI manslaughter, and leaving the scene of a fatal crash. Um, Hassan was arrested on June 22nd after hitting Harrell um, with the vehicle he was driving. Um, and basically, Harold's injuries were so severe, she died days later. Following the crash, Hassan drove off and was found sleeping on the ground behind his car in a parking lot. Um, there was damage to the windshield of his car where blood was found. Uh, they found him with slurred speech. They, um, he now admits to being intoxicated. In spite of pleas from Harold's father, Michael Harold, a judge released Hassan. I'd love to know who this Hassan guy is and where he comes from, but that's a different story. He was released on 11,500 bond. Again, consummate flight risk. He was fleeing the scene. Um, vehicular homicide through DUI, 11,000 bond. After Harold died and Hassan's charges were upgraded, he was again released on bond after posing 75,000 with conditions. Um... He agreed to certain conditions, ankle bracelet, but in September, a circuit judge ruled that Hassan tampered with the monitor and said he tested positive for THC, um, the night of the collision. Rather than revoke his bond and lock him up, as Harold's mother, Paula Cobb, hoped, the judge released Hassan again with instructions he must follow a curfew and ordered him to take random urine tests for alcohol and drug use um, per the newspaper. Quote, his choices killed our daughter, Cobb said in September. He has proven danger to our community with a deadly, violent drug and gun-related past. Uh, an attorney for Harold's family said Hassan had been previously arrested on drug charges and court documents showed he's a member of the Nine Trey Gangster Bloods Street Gang. Transnational gang member, DUI, drugs, weapons, kills this girl and is let out on 11,000 bond, then is caught violating the terms of his release and is not locked up. Folks, this is happening without and before the laws that these guys want to pass to codify this stuff. There's no balance whatsoever. No one's willing to sit down with me and say, look, I want A and B categories to be more lenient, but I'll work with you on the simple recognition that so many pe violent people are not being locked up. No. Do you know why they can't do that? Because if you actually did that, even if you released everyone that they say is nonviolent, guess what? 
guess what? The prison population would soar just based on the violent people because we have a heck of a lot of violent crime. Now, under my system that we would actually deter it, you know, with the first generation of people locking them up swiftly, believe me, you would have less crime because it would be deterred. And then guess what? You'd have less incarceration. But the problem is not incarceration. It's the symptom. The problem is violent, immoral crime that needs to be deterred. Man, I didn't even get to anything because I, I wanted to get to the whole California Prop 47 and the epidemic of theft and shoplifting and the cost to businesses that's taking place. We didn't even get to that. So much more is going on. But I want to end off. We'll have to save that for tomorrow. We're going to have a U.S. attorney Lelling, unless his schedule changes. We're going to have him on. He is the U.S. attorney from Massachusetts dealing with the drugs there, the sanctuary problems, crime. We'll talk to him about some of these things. Let me know your questions for him. But I want to end off from lawenforcementtoday.com. They posted a poem written by a wounded police officer. And I'm just going to end off as follows. One of my first memories was that of getting off the school bus and running into the waiting arms of my mother after my very first day of school. That day, I knew I was important to someone. Growing up, I remember standing in the batter's box. I carried the hopes of my team on my shoulders after a simple single hit that drove in the winning run, being greeted at home plate in the arms of my team. I felt that I was important to someone. I became an adult and chose to enter public service. I remember being spat at, assaulted, or cursed. I was a pig, a hose dragger, or ambulance driver. Whether I arrested your abuser, put out your kitchen fire, or saved your grandparents with CPR, your tear-filled thanks and heartfelt hugs made me feel that at that single moment, I was important to someone. I went overseas for whatever reason that called me. You called me a soldier, seaman, airman, marine, or even con contractor. Whatever I did, you, say, you said I liberated, educated, or defended. When I returned and got off that plane, you greeted me with a hug. And for that single moment, I felt I was someone, I was important to someone. Now my parents are either old and gray or gone entirely. The crowds no longer cheer at the swing of my bat. The sirens no longer sing the song that I love. There is no longer the report of a rifle in my ear. Like it was when I was important to someone. I'm older and no longer in the mix. I can't run fast or swing a bat. I'm no longer on the front line. I have no title that the word former no longer proceeds. I remember when I was important to someone. I am but a memory or a news clipping at best or to most. I'm an anecdote told in the squadron, squad room among the rookies. I'm a story told at the bar followed by a toast by those who were next to me. I'm a memory. I'm a story. I used to be important to someone. I never sought adoration. I never needed approval. I did my best and did what I felt was right. All I wish is that I was still important to someone. Now I stand in the middle of the ring like a boxer that took all that my opponent, opponent could give. I'm tired. The fight is over, broken, bruised, and bloody. There is no way I won. I don't, need, I don't need the win. I need the support. I wish I was still important. And, you know, there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people that cross as a um, fireman, EMT, police, eventually going to the military, were in the military and later became that. A lot of people that do these jobs do multiple ones. And, you know, thank, thank God we have an audience here that appreciates. And thank God, I will tell you, I'm very down on our country and our culture, but 
the overwhelming majority appreciate them. They really do. It's the political elites and the legal profession and the media and the cultural institutions that don't. The big vexing question for us is how do we get the silent majority to overpower the immoral minority? Till tomorrow, thank you for listening. God bless.